All right, well, if you have them, open up your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have it with you, uh, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one uh, and flip there with us. We'll be in Psalm 118. Today, uh, or I guess this time period, is an important period in the church's life. Uh, It's March Madness, okay? Uh, And so March Madness reminds me a lot of our relationship with God. No, there's no, there's no transition. I just like March Madness, so we're, uh, I don't know if you've got the bracket going on, but uh, it's a, an interesting time, an exciting time for me. Um, and then, I don't know, just memory-wise, if March Madness has ever been so, like, overlapping with Easter season. I feel like in the past four or five years that I've been here, there hasn't been that kind of overlap. But, but we're here, today is Palm Sunday, and we're kind of in Easter week, okay? Uh, so Palm Sunday is this morning, the morning where typically Christians remember our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem uh, before his death. And, and then we'll have Good Friday. Uh, we'll be having a Good Friday service here at the church Friday night at 7.30 p.m. So go ahead and put that on your calendar. Uh, Friday night, 7.30 p.m. We're in the middle of a seven-year series on Good Friday. Uh, so there's seven sayings on the cross, and each year we do another one. Uh, it's the most thought-out thing I've ever done in my life before. Uh, so you can join us on Friday night for our Good Friday service. It'll be at 7.30, and then next week we'll celebrate Easter together uh, on Easter morning. And so... This morning I wanted to look at Psalm 118 uh, as we celebrate Palm Sunday. Now it's an interesting psalm. You remember the Psalter, the Psalms, this collection of 150 different songs we have in our Bible. It's kind of like God's iPod playlist, okay? This are, these are His people's songs that they sing over and over again to, to remember and, and recognize and confess who He is and what He's done, what He wants to do in the future. And Psalm 118 has kind of a special place in the Psalter. It's an interesting psalm. So before it, and Psalm 117 is the shortest song. It's the shortest Psalter in the Bible. And then after it, Psalm 119, you have the longest. If you remember, Psalm 119 is this long love poem about the law, uh, the Torah of God, how much um, Israel appreciated and loved the law. And then you have Psalm 118. Now I'm told also that if you were to lay out all the books of the Bible and all the chapters in the Bible, I haven't done this, I'm not going to, but if, if you were to do this, Psalm 118 is the, in the exact middle. It's the exact middle chapter of the entire Bible. So I don't know if you're into this kind of Bible code type stuff, right? But if you were, this would be a place to do some work. So I think it's, it's verse 8 and 9. Again, I would never, I don't know the math you have to do to do this. But it's verse 8 and 9 that actually form the center verses of the Bible as, as it's come to you and I. Um, now, if you're familiar with church history at all, a guy named Martin Luther, uh, kind of the great reformer during the Protestant Reformation, he said that this psalm, Psalm 118, was his favorite psalm. Uh, and he was a big fan of the Psalter, uh, but he says this is, this is his favorite psalm. So he says this about it, quote, This is my own beloved psalm, although the entire Psalter and all of Holy Scripture are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life. I fell in love with this psalm especially, therefore I call it my own. When emperors and kings, the wise and the learned, and even the saints could not aid me, this psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result, it's dearer to me than all the wealth, honor, and power of the Pope, the Turk, and the Emperor. I would be most unwilling to trade this psalm for all of it. Now, as I was reading through uh, Jesus' last week of life, okay, this is kind of what we're focusing on as a church globally. All, all Christians in the world right now are taking some time in their church life to remember Jesus' death and his resurrection and, and all that accomplished and all that that means for us. And as you're reading through the last week of Jesus' life, if you're an attentive reader, what you'll notice is over and over and over again, Psalm 118 is going to make an appearance at the end of the Gospels. 
So when Jesus um, comes into Jerusalem, you remember Jesus is a, a preacher. He preaches up in Galilee, which is kind of north of Israel. And he, he spends most of his life preaching up there. Um, but then when he's a, a young adult, he comes to Jerusalem. And as he enters into Jerusalem, the people in the city come out to meet him. And they celebrate his arrival. And as they celebrate his arrival, one of the things that they quote, that they start singing when they see Jesus, is a line from Psalm 118 that shows up in the triumphal entry on, on Palm Sunday. And then as Jesus gets into Jerusalem, it goes kind of bad for him, okay? So when he shows up, everyone's really excited that Jesus is there, okay? He's signing Bibles and kissing babies and all that whole nine yards, right? And, and they're all really pumped that he's shown up. Um, but then really quickly, the whole kind of city turns on him because he goes to the temple. And instead of, instead of kind of organizing Israel against the Romans, which who, who they thought their, their enemies were at that time, who they thought God was going to defeat, he instead starts to criticize the Jewish leaders, the temple itself, and, and he predicts its destruction. And Jesus actually quotes Psalm 118 while he's at the temple. Almost as if them singing that song as he arrives got him really thinking about what that song was about. And so he had it ready when he was at the temple. And he, he quotes Psalm 118. And then right before Jesus is arrested and killed, he's having this Passover, this Passover feast celebration with his disciples. And, and at a Passover feast, you would, you would sing certain songs. And in fact, um, Psalm 118 is one of these songs you would sing. It's part of a group of psalms that we call the Egyptian Hallel, or, or praise songs about what God did in Egypt. And Passover is all about remembering and celebrating God's deliverance um, of the Israelites in Egypt. And so I think you and I are to imagine that Jesus and his disciples actually sung Psalm 118 at this, this last supper, right before he's arrested and, and crucified and then and then risen again. And so this morning uh, on Palm Sunday, I thought perhaps we would take a look at this song, this song that emerges over and over and over again in the last week of Jesus' life, and, and perhaps um, the Lord will speak to us through it, okay? So Psalm 118, we're going to just read through it as we begin here, okay? So we'll pick it up in verse 1. It goes like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and, and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118. Now, as we make some observations, immediately you should note that the song starts and ends with the very same line. It's an inclusio. It's, it's this bracket. It's a picture frame, okay? And it is a, a pointer to you. It's a poet's tool to you and I that this is kind of the main point of the song. Okay, don't miss it. It starts with it and it ends with it to make sure it's cemented in your mind. And, and the phrase is this, give thanks to the Lord. Now, when you see Lord in all caps here, which you see here in Psalm 118, verse 1, this is, this is put in place for God's personal name, Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. This is God's revealed personal name to his people. Give thanks to Yahweh. Give thanks to the Lord because for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And the song starts that way, and it ends that way. And in fact, Psalm 118 is this one long confession of the reality that the God of the Israelites, and the God of Jesus, or the God we know through the Holy Spirit, is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. That perhaps is the correct context for you and I to approach understanding what's happening on the cross and then understanding what happens through Jesus' resurrection. That this all is an action from a God who is good and a God whose love endures forever, has a love that won't run out, that doesn't dry up, that won't be stopped. It's unfailing. Now, the Hebrew word for steadfast love here is this word chesed, okay? Kind of, you have this loogie in your throat, okay? The beginning chesed, say that with me. Chesed. Very good. Very proud of you guys. Do some Hebrew this morning, all right? And, and this is a word that's a little tricky to translate, okay? But it, it turns out to be one of the more probably important words in the Old Testament. So, so different translations will do this differently. NIV does loving kindness, I think. Other translations might do love, might do grace. ESV typically does it as steadfast love, okay? And there is this sense in said that it's, it's God's love for his people, for his creation. But there's also the sense where said is tied up with this idea of covenant. And, and the covenant is kind of how God and his people were bound together, the relationship that they were a part of. In a covenant, it's kind of this formal agreement that's almost legally binding contract where two people go into a relationship together and they each have obligations and they each have promises. They each have expectations. Think of a a marriage, a man and a woman come together and they mutually bind themselves to each other. And you have this kind of steadfast, loving commitment in that marriage, or at least you're, you're supposed to, that's the design of it. But for chesed, for, for particularly God's chesed, there's this extra added dimension to it in the old Testament to where not only is, is God apparently committed to keeping his promises. So when he comes to creation and says, I know that things have gone wrong with sin and with death and with evil and all these things, but I'm going to fix it. I'm going to undo it. Not only is God committed to keeping his promises, but he's also committed to keeping all the promises. The way we would say this is, not only is, is Yahweh committed to doing right, he's committed to making right. 
to the point where even if the other person in the covenant fails, he's willing to pick up the slack. There's this very intense kind of one-way, one-sided, unilateral commitment to fulfilling the purpose of his covenant, to drawing his people into his life, into his love. And so perhaps the best picture we have of this is the story of Hosea in the Old Testament. If you remember the story, um, God calls a prophet to kind of make his life an object lesson of God's love for his people. And so Hosea the prophet uh, gets to marry a, a prostitute. Uh, a prostitute, and, and, and so he marries her and shows her this kind of covenant faithfulness, this love, this chesed. And, and the prostitute, in return, goes in and cheats on him, commits adultery, and, and sells herself into slavery. Now, at this point, again, Hosea's met all of his promises. He's fulfilled his side of the covenant. But Hosea is called by the Lord, again, as this kind of lesson in what God's love is like, to go back and get her, to go pursue her to go chase her down, to go buy her, to go sacrifice for her, to put her back in this relationship. And it happens over and over and over again. And finally the punchline comes and, and God says, this is our relationship. And not only should you feel maybe a twinge of guilt at, okay, yeah, we've kind of cheated on God, but you should also feel a surge of revelation about what is at the heart of God, his, his kind of core reality. He was called it chesed. This unending, one-way, strong pursuit of that which she has chosen to love. That would say, I'll keep my promises and I'll keep your promises. You are not able to break this. And Israel was commanded to, to remember this. Was commanded to, to keep this in mind. Was commanded to understand that this is the, the heart of who God is and how we've come to know God. And so no matter how often Israel broke covenant and, and rebelled against God, he continued to, to make sacrifice for them. He continued to pursue them. He continued to say, the plan is still on track. Don't worry. Even if it means one day I'll have to become human and do what you were supposed to do and pay the price for your disobedience. That's how committed I am. My steadfast love endures forever, he says. Since the song starts that way and ends that way. And indeed, the, the God that Christians have come to know in the face of Christ and, and through the work of the Spirit is this God of love. So 1 John 4 would say, God is love. In this, this tight predicate statement, okay? God is love at the core of who he is. His most inward, ultimate reality is love. It's a working towards redemption and life for the other. And we are taught as Christians, we're trained as we read the scriptures to, to come to know God as the triune one, right? For Christians, God is, is triune. There's three persons to God. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and to understand how you can say God is love, you have to understand this relationship that God has been in for eternity. I mean, to put on our thinking caps for a little bit, right? God has, according to the scriptures and according to Christian tradition, for eternity been in community. God himself is community. You can only have love in community. And the Father loves the Son and loves the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And for all of eternity, the, the church fathers call this a dance. They've been in this divine dance, this perfect love community. And then out of that love, the Trinity creates and they say, we want to share our love, this perfect love with our creation. We want to draw them in to our life, to our dance, to the love that we experience and share. 
And even when creation goes wrong, they pursue. And with all the ferocious energy of the divine, God says, you're mine. And I will redeem you. I'll find you. I'll save you. Because my love never endures. I think sometimes we still wonder if there's a part of God that if we really saw it, we wouldn't like. If God is perhaps like, like our father, or perhaps like the bully in, in elementary school, or perhaps like that, that person in our office. If God is perhaps actually waiting for us to mess up to make an example of us. Or if God is perhaps still hung up on something we did way back when. And we need to confess, like the, the Israelites, his steadfast love endures forever. Can we dare to believe that this is who God is? Can we dare to believe that, that when we see Jesus and we see the Spirit working out in our hearts, that this is a God of love, a God that has a one-way commitment to, to giving you and I and all of creation life? And notice here, it's very interesting in, in Psalm 118, um, Israel... The, the worshiping community is commanded to say this. There's this, this refrain, this repetition, okay? So give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 2, let Israel say. So this is probably like the, the lay people, okay, of Israel. Let, let them say his steadfast love endures forever. And then let the house of Aaron say. So the priests, like the professional priests there, they say his steadfast love endures forever. And then the God-fearers, the non-Israelite converts, let them say, his steadfast love endures forever. And what we should probably imagine is kind of this kind of in turn, right? And so in the diversity of those who are worshiping the Lord, they're all confessing in this repetitive way that his steadfast love endures forever. Now, two things I want to point out. The first is that in, in Christian history and tradition, the Psalms have been prayed and sung. <clears throat> I mean, from the very beginning, we have very early church fathers talking about how the psalms are sung and put to music. And, and even to this day, I think you'll, you'll find a lot of people who say, I, I pray the psalms. Those words are my words, and I utter them to God. And even beyond that, again, in this psalm, you have a command. Say it. Verbalize these words. And I think there's something important happening there. So when you think about how language works, okay, this is one of the things that, that really interests me. When you think about how meaning is formed and how you use words. There's this theory that's, that's kind of gained some ground recently called the speech act theory. And basically what it, what it says is that when you talk, when you say something, you're performing. You're doing more than just describing reality. You're creating reality. And you're entering into relationships and you're altering relationships. You're doing something. You're acting something when you speak. When you speak, when you put words forth. So, for instance, here's just a, kind of a normal example. If someone calls me up and says, hey, Mike, do you want to go to the Rockets game tonight? And I respond to them, you know what? I'm not feeling very well. I've got a headache. I'm tired. I've got a lot to do tomorrow. What did I just do? I just did something with my words. I performed an action. In fact, I altered a relationship. I altered the future. In effect, with those words, I did what? I turned down the invitation. I said, no, I won't be going with you to the Rockets game tomorrow, right? Now, if you're looking at it on, on paper, you might think, how odd, right? The person on the phone didn't ask him how he felt, right? He asked him whether he wanted to go to the game or not. But with that description, I did something. I performed something. I said, no, I don't want to go to the game with you. 
And oftentimes, um, when you and I verbalize things, particularly when we pray the prayers of the Psalms, when we say things, you and I are entering into a new relationship. Oftentimes, when we make confessions, we're entering into new obligations. This is a key feature of, of life in um, the people of Israel, and then even throughout the, uh, again, Christian tradition, um, with these kind of creedal confessions. When we confess things about God, we're committing ourselves to God. And so when I say, you are king, I'm doing way more than just describing some form of reality that I'm now apparently aware of, right? When I say that he is king, I'm committing myself in the future to acting like he is the king. I'm just now, in a sense, entered in and created in and committed myself to a relationship. There's something that happens that wouldn't happen if I just read the words. And Israel's commanded, say it. Say, his steadfast love endures forever. Enter into that relationship. Verbalize it. I think there's something important there. So here's what we're going to do, okay? I know we're not talkative, we're not, we're not that kind of crowd, but I'm going to say, let First Colony Christian Church say... And you're going to say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then flip with me real quick, okay? Because we're going to make this complicated, because otherwise it wouldn't be fun. Um, verse 28. Toward the end of the psalm, you see these obligations start to come through, okay? What does it mean to say, steadfast love endures forever? Well, verse 28, you are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. It's a response to his steadfast love, and it's saying, you are my God. And this is how I will live. This is how I will respond. This is the commitment that I make to the commitment that you've made. So I'll, I'll say one time that First Colony Christian Church say, and you'll say, a steadfast love endures forever. And then I'll say, and let First Colony Christian Church say, and you'll say, you are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Okay? Because I think it's important for us to say it and not just to read it. Do you follow me? I mean, you, you see what I'm getting at here? So, so we're going to try it here. Let First Colony Christian Church say... His steadfast love endures forever. And the first calling Christian church say, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Now he calls the worshipers to say it, to verbalize it. To say, this is the reality that I have entered, that I recognize, has been revealed to me. Now at the beginning of the psalm as well, as they're confessing, um, the goodness of God, they also have this kind of repetition that's happening here. I think there's something important and, and that reality as well. You see, when we, when we have these truths that we repeat to ourselves and then that we hear repeated over and over and over again, something starts to happen where they start to get cemented into our imaginations and into our hearts. I mean, this is one of the things that stands behind the idea of church, liturgy. Why every Sunday do we come to church and hear the same thing? I'm guessing most of you know Jesus died for your sins and rose again, Right? Spoiler alert, if you're watching the Bible TV show, okay? So why do, we, why do we do it again? And again, and again, and again. Because we want to consistently immerse ourselves in that good news, and that story. Until, through time and practice, it's almost like a part of us. It's buried itself deep down into kind of the core of who we are. When you think about why you, you listen to the same song again. Why don't you listen to a song and say, I like that song. Next song. And you never go back and listen. No, no, no. If you like a song, you, if you're like me, you repeat it until you're sick of it, right? <laughs> a thousand and a half plays later, you're like, I think it's time for a new album. 
And what you'll notice that song is kind of a part of you. And those phrases mean something very deep to you. The notes itself, you can anticipate and feel in your bones, right? Repetition. This is, this is how it works. It kind of, again, works its way into the core of who we are. Um, I can remember as a high schooler, one of the first verses, I think maybe the first verse I ever memorized, uh, Philippians 127, which is, no matter what happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I memorized that. And, and would just repeat it to myself constantly over and over and over again because things happened to me and I didn't want to carry myself in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so it's like, I need to get this down. I remember very clearly, you know, being in the car and my parents saying something and me about to go back to this woody one-liner, right? And then there it is. I didn't even want it there. I didn't bring it there, but there it was. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I'm like, ah, that was brilliant. <laughs> I was finally going to get them. <laughs> Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it becomes this kind of, again, kind of this subconscious effector of change in my life. Where it becomes this axiomatic truth of my soul. And, and I can remember years later, going through a, 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 a rough time. A time where I just wasn't happy with a lot of things that were happening. I can remember um, memorizing a poem in Habakkuk 3. Right at the end of Habakkuk. Um, so it's a short book, three chapters, very interesting. And then right at the end, he offers this, this, this psalm in chapter 3, and then it ends with these, these last three verses, 17, 18, and 19. And they've just really been some of the more powerful words I've ever heard. And, and I remember memorizing them. I don't still have them memorized, so I'm going to read it right here. But, but it says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, so basically... Everything's broken. I mean, nothing is providing for me. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And I remember very clearly sitting in a chair with with my thoughts to myself and repeating these lines just over and over and over again. Yet, even if the rose doesn't bud, even if the crops don't produce... Even if, even if. I was talking with a, uh, a friend of mine, Adam. He's a, a middle school pastor. Some of you know Adam. Uh, and he was telling me about a group of kids he has. So he's a, a middle school pastor in spring. And he's got a group of about probably 150 middle schoolers. And on Wednesday nights, they do small groups, okay? And so small groups are supposed to be like five to ten kids. Um, but since he's kind of the celebrity youth pastor, right, uh, I mean, everyone wants to be in Adam's group. So he, he's cut it off at about 20 kids. And the way he tells the story, those kids are all stars, Okay, I mean, this is the hope of the world, this group of 20 middle schoolers. And, and the, he kind of leverages everyone wanting to be in his group because he gives them lots of things to do in his group. And the thing is, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Someone else will be in the group, right? So, I mean, he, he gives them more homework than I give my high schoolers. Uh, and I'm like, I can't even get away with that. But he, he had them maybe a year ago memorize a, a quote, okay? And, and the quote was from Dorothy Day. I don't know if you know the quote, but the quote goes like this. It's a good, it's a good little line. It goes, you only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. You only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. And he said, he never expected this, but he said, so I had all these kids memorize this quote, and I could have never anticipated when and where this quote now comes out when we're talking and when we're discussing things. And he said, even to the point where multiple times a kid has been in the middle of a sentence making an argument about a situation or a relationship and then stopped and be like, Finish the point. Like, no, you only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. It's become this, like, subconscious filter. 
to where they're about to, to go into analyze this relationship and say, no, this person's getting what they deserve or this person, you know, blew their shot or this person, it's not our responsibility. And then they stop themselves and they go, no, that's not right. You only love God as much as you love the person you love the least. In a sense, it becomes what we would call maybe a hermeneutical lens on our own lives. It's a way of interpreting all of our experiences. When we, through repetition, get these axiomatic truths deep down into a place of our soul, the place of, of, of where you and I actually are. What would happen if, if like Israel, we, we got to, to this truth of a steadfast love endures forever? How would that cause us to interpret past events, present situations, future possibilities? What if we would start talking one day and then stop ourselves and go, no, 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 his steadfast love endures forever. I think that's what the psalm is trying to get the worshipers to. I think that's the, the end point. I think that's the goal here. Confess it, say it, verbalize this, and then get this in your mind. Make this a part of who you are and how you think and how you talk and how you see the world around you. So the psalm starts off with this confession of the Lord's goodness. And then it goes into describing the experience of God's goodness because Scripturally, God's goodness is not something to be theorized about. It's not something to be debated and something to be kind of logically deduced. It's something to be experienced. You only know how good God is by experiencing it. And if you try to stay in these mental games, you'll often be, be lost, right? How can God be so good? I've seen a lot of evil. Well, a person who's also experienced Christ on the cross dying for their sins and rising again can say, Oh, he's good. Trust me. I've experienced it. I've seen it. I've been trained to rethink about history and the circumstances around me. God's given us something to be experienced. And so the, the psalmist recounts his experience. Verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This confidence is created by the salvation, the rescue that, that Yahweh had provided for them. He says, the Lord's on my side. I've realized he's committed to me. I have no fear. In fact, there's almost a swagger here, right? What can man do to me? This line right here, verse 6, will be uh, quoted in Hebrews 13, verse 6, at the end of, of the sermon called Hebrews. The Lord is on my side is my help, verse 7. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. Verse 8 and 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This exclusive loyalty has been created by the Lord's redemption. He's experienced firsthand that it's better to trust in God than in human beings. Which sometimes is a hard lesson. And he's experienced in firsthand, it's better to trust in God than to trust in, in princes and in, in governments and armies and laws. He's got this confidence. He's got this exclusive loyalty that's been, been created. Verse 10, all nations surrounded me. So, so some details about the deliverance. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Some metaphors, some similes. They surrounded me like bees. This is like one of my biggest fears, okay? This is a swarm of bees around you. I mean, how do you? I don't even know, but there's bees around him. They went out like a fire among thorns, this crackling of fire. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. 
And then we start to get into some Exodus language. So if you remember the Exodus, um, God delivers his people from Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. He frees them. And this becomes kind of the, the, the paradigm of salvation for God's people. This is the basic shape of salvation. His people are slaves. He fights a battle. And then they're freed. And when we see Jesus on the cross in his resurrection, um, the Gospels are trying to get us to understand it in the same way. As people are slaves to sin and death, a battle has been fought for us on the cross. A surprising battle, but a battle nonetheless. And then in the resurrection, victory, freedom is accomplished for his people. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is a quote from Exodus 15, the song of Moses, the, the, the victory song that God's people sing after they're freed. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. If you walk around people who have been saved, you'll hear, you'll hear songs. You'll hear joyful songs. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It exalts. It does valiantly. This is, again, Exodus 15 language. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Now, Luther actually, um, again, remember, this is his favorite psalm. The legend goes that Luther, no matter where he would go, would write on a wall or even carve if he had to, verse 17. Wherever he was sleeping... This verse would be above him, around him somewhere. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And so the Israelites experienced Yahweh's love through the Exodus, through the provisions that he provided them afterwards. And as Christians, again, as we read the Gospels, as we experience and reflect on the cross and the resurrection, we come to see Jesus in his work in Jerusalem as the, in a sense, new exodus, as God's ultimate act of freedom, his ultimate victory for his people. And you and I are supposed to learn and grow and be trained to look back at Jesus on the cross and recognize that as God's love being poured out. As his love for us being poured out, his steadfast love enduring. And you and I are supposed to look back at our lives and, and past events and experience, recognize God's love for us. And you and I, if we find ourselves surrounded, like, like with bees, surrounded with fire, we're to remember and expect God's love for us to, to lead us out. God's love is experienced. Again, I don't think in the scriptures you find an explanation for evil, like a, like, a, like a statement about why God allows evil. I think you do find over and over again God's reaction to evil, his response to evil. The response is to enter into the situation himself, to take the suffering and the hurt of the world on himself and to lead it into freedom, to say, I won't abandon you because you've broken your deal. But because perfect love is who I am, I'm running after you. I'm grasping you. I'm inviting you into my life. Life that I've, I've shared from eternity. And so you have this confession of God's goodness. You have this recounting of the experience of God's goodness. And then you have a response to God's goodness. Look in, in verse 19 here. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This desire to praise him. This desire to, to lift up and recount his deeds. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me. You've become my salvation, my rescue. Now, verse 22, this is the verse that Jesus quotes in the temple. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, so we'll come back to this. 
Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hard for me to read that without the song um, in, my, in my mind here. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord. Just me. That's cool. Verse 25. I see how it is. Right. Verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Now, save us, we pray. This is where we would get the word Hosanna. Okay, save us. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So this is what they're quoting when Jesus enters into um, Jerusalem. That and Hosanna, save us, we pray. Verse 27, the Lord is God, Yahweh is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us, bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And again, you are my God, I'll give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Now here's where I want us to be careful. Here's where I think a warning exists for us. When we watch Psalm 118 play out when Jesus shows up to Jerusalem, he shows up and they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus very quickly identifies that it's possible to sing Psalm 118 and still miss out on what he's doing in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and says, the, the builders have rejected the cornerstone. The one who came to complete the project has been thrown away. And you have to imagine that, that at least some of those same people who are cheering him on as he enters in Jerusalem are there when he's being crucified and are chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify. I think it's, it's dangerous but possible to sing this song and to yet still miss out when God shows up and accomplishes his salvation. To still miss out on what exactly it looks like for God's goodness to explode into our world. And still exactly miss out on who it is who's the one of whom we say blessed is the one who comes in his name and his power. As this week approaches, I mean, it's always a scary thought for me to think about what's, what side of the crowd I would be on in Jerusalem. I mean, if, if you think about it, even Jesus' closest disciples will eventually back off here. And while we, we think we've evolved, right, and grown as a society and a civilization, I, I still think, I think we'd crucify him again. I mean, I've seen his ideas interact with people, and, and you get the same violent response. I mean, I would think, I would imagine that, that that wouldn't be the case, but I mean, after seeing it with my own eyes and ears over and over and over again, I would just feel like we, we wouldn't be able to accept him. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, I mean, we just, we're not there yet. Like church people, I think we, we would be dangerously tempted to again reject him. I think part of what we need to do as disciples and fellowship with each other is come to again and again recognize in Jesus, this is the one who's come from God, who reveals who God is to us. The kingdom that he is starting is salvation presented to us. You see, the Jewish people, they thought that, that when God showed up to be good, it would result in a lot of Roman blood. And Jesus rejects this wholesale. And this ultimately probably ends up being what gets Jesus on a cross, right? He comes, he doesn't attack the Romans in Jerusalem, he attacks the Jews. This is unacceptable to them. Not only is he attacking God's people, but he's attacking the wrong people. I mean, there's, there's clearly evil people here in Jerusalem in control. They wanted a, a, a kind of violent, victory, militaristic Messiah, and, and he wasn't about that at all. 
And Jesus had offered them the way into the kingdom, right? He had shown them the path about what it looked like to follow him. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pick up your cross. Live generously. Let go of your money. Let go of your worries. Follow after me. Look like I look. Talk like I talk. Act like I act. It was rejected. It was missed out on. And I wonder, I wonder if, if, if we're responding appropriately, if we've, we've really recognized that that's what it looks like when God shows up. And that's also what it looks like to respond appropriately. It looks like someone saying, I'll be the salt of the, the world. I'll be the light of the world. I'll pray like he taught me to pray. I'll, I'll love like he taught me to love. I'll forgive like he taught me to forgive. I'll, I'll give my money like he taught me to give my money. I'll pray for his kingdom to come the way he taught me to pray for his kingdom to come. So three questions this morning from Psalm 118, a psalm that surprisingly turns out to be pretty important in this last week of Jesus' life. First question is this, can we, will we, have we confessed God's goodness? Has that seeped its way down into kind of the core part of who we are? Second question is, have we experienced it? One, have we come to recognize and experience Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection, as God's work of salvation? And then two, are we experiencing his goodness, his love? Are we expecting it? And the third question is, is how we responded. Have we responded by, by just saying, that's nice, I'm glad that happened. Or by verbalizing this, this new kind of commitment here. I mean, it's one thing, again, just to read these words, you are my God, and to wonder what this person writing the psalm is thinking when they're saying you are my God and what they're imagining that means and all those things. It's another thing to stand up and say, you are my God, and I will extol you. You are my God, and I'll, I'll give thanks to you. As we end this morning, um, I'll ask one last time that First Colony Christian Church say, his steadfast love endures forever. And let First Colony Christian Church say, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you.